23rd, 2023. My name is Critch and you are tuned into Canadian Patriot Radio. Welcome, friends. So what are we going to do today, my friends? We are going to tackle some climate issues. Um, we've got a new study out that uh, kind of coincides with the old Forbes article that I had read to you guys probably ooh, a couple years back that tore apart the whole 97% argument. Uh, this article basically breaks it down a little bit more, but we're going to get into that because it's looking like the Canadian banks are going to start trying to push us over to a thing called green banking. Um, and it's kind of scary. This could be the road to the social credit score that you know that these uh, uh, tyrannical governments around the world want. <clears throat> and then I had a very good video uh, sent to me by Graham. Uh, hats off, Graham. This is a really good one. Randy Hillier has been doing some uh, deep investigations into uh, the government. Um the government grooming of our kids so we're, we're gonna the latter part of the show we're gonna turn it over to randy and let him uh, let him take over the show because this is something that you guys are gonna want to hear um but what i wanted to start with was i wanted to open with the bud light boycott um we got kind of a review uh put forward for us of the first week of what happened with bud light now this comes to us by way of the epoch times and the title reads the bud light boycott appears to be working analysts say that the sale of the brand declined in the first week of the boycott well we all know that but it's kind of interesting these numbers so this is by jack phillips and it was written on april 21st 2023 bud light sales declined in the first week of a conservative-led boycott of the brand after it partnered with transgender activist dylan mulvaney according to analysis Dave Williams of Bump Williams Consulting told industry website Brewbound that packages of Bud Light showed accelerating declines in sales and shares in the week ending in April 8th, when the boycott started to pick up steam. He cited NIQ data for his assertion. That being said, while the increased declines for Bud Light were apparent, they were also not completely earth-shattering in terms of magnitude, Williams wrote in a note, according to the publication. Now, this will be interesting to monitor over upcoming weeks to see if, if the <clears throat> slide continues. But for now, it looks to be rough, not, but not catastrophic. Bud Light posted a 7% decline in off-premise dollar sales, a 10.7% decline in volume, and a 3.7% decline in dollar shares. He wrote, the company saw a 1.6% decline in dollar shares and a 6.4% decline in volume and a 0.7% decline in dollar shares for the prior week. On the surface, the, tr uh, the trends for Bud Light definitely do show some variance when it comes to sales, with uh, some showing sharper declines in the L1W versus others, Williams said. On, to on top of just dollar trends, though, it's been Bud Light's share of the premium segment of the LIW that tells a pretty consistent story where Bud Light lost, sh uh, lost share to a more notable degree to its competitors. 
The light beer's competitors saw their shares and sales increase, he said. Coors Light increased in dollar sales by 10.7%, its volume by 5.5%, and its dollar share by 1.5%, Williams noted. Miller Light saw its dollar share increase by 16.9%, and volume increased by 11.7%, and its dollar share increased by 2.3% in the same April 8th time period. Widespread calls to boycott Bud Light were triggered earlier this month after Mulvaney, a male who claims to be female, posted uh, about getting uh, commemorative cans of Bud Light with his likeness on the label. Mulvaney Bud Light's par- uh, and Bud Light's parent company, Anheuser-Busch, confirmed they were involved in a campaign. <clears throat> Country singer calls for Bud Light boycott. Han- a handful of country singers suggested that consumers boycott the brand over the move. Last week, Donald Trump Jr., the former pr- uh, president's son, said Anheuser-Busch is contributing to GOP candidates and called for an end to the boycott, receiving conservative backlash for his remark. remarks. I'm not for destroying an American iconic company for something like this. The company itself doesn't participate in the same leftist nonsense as other big conglomer- conglomerates, he said. About a week ago, Anheuser-Busch CEO Brendan Whitworth wrote a statement that the company never intended to be part of a discussion that divides people, but stopped short, short of mentioning Mulvaney or the campaign. The company also released a patriotic advertisement on social media, replete with American flags and iconic landmarks, that drew backlash from conservative commentators and influencers on social media. We are in the business of bringing people together over a beer, he wrote. Whitworth also stopped short of apologizing for the company's actions and did not mention the boycott. Among the singers who called for the boycott was John Rich, who told Fox News he pulled Bud Light from his redneck Riviera bar in Nashville, Tennessee, earlier this month. Others who suggested a boycott were Travis Tritt and Kid Rock, who uploaded a video of himself shooting cases of the beer for target practice. Well, it looks like they've come out with this this pro-American, patriotic, old-school Budweiser-looking ad with the Clydesdales and the red, white, and blue and all that, Rich said last week on Fox News. Well, a little late for that. You know, the American public, we've never left, we've never left alone, we're never left alone anymore. We're lit- we literally can't go anywhere without something divisive or political being thrown in our face. And I like when they went after the beer cans, you know, something that people have loved for decades. You know, Bud Light, Coors Light, that kind of thing uh, of like Ford or Chevy. Some industry experts, however, suggest that boycotts are difficult to maintain and likely won't work in the long term. The vast majority of boycotts uh, fail. Maurice Schweitzer, a professor at University of Pennsylvania Wharton School of Business, told ABC News earlier this month. They fail because you need people to have sustained and coordinated responses. He added, most people fall back on what is convenient and inexpensive. Well, I'd have to disagree with Maurice Schweitzer. Uh, I'm, I'm just noting firsthand. Now, I was at um, a friend of mine's birthday on the weekend here on Friday, and I was noting uh, what everybody was uh, kicking back, and there was no Bud Light at all. At all. There was a few. A few. Not not very much. I, sh- I should say I should say that there was a few and everybody that had them <laughs> was telling me that they they were they were pre pre-bought. <laughs> so uh, just like the end of the article said, this has nothing to, for most of us, this has nothing to do with if you're gay or straight. We don't care. We honestly don't give a rip. It's this woke agenda that we can't escape anymore, that people are, that, that people have had it, including myself. Like, it's just, it's too much. And when, when you, you know, when you think sports and beer and stuff like that, those are escapes from the political realms that we're forced to live in. And when you start attacking them, 
do not be surprised by for one second that you see a backlash. And I think it's going to maintain. Judging from the response even just here in southeast Saskatchewan, I, I would say that this, this boycott's going to maintain. This will be a permanent dip. And uh, the reason I like this article so much was the numbers for the other outfits, like uh, Coors Light and Miller, like Miller exploded like when you think about that miller saw its dollar sales increase by 16.9 percent and its volume increased by 11.7 percent so when you start thinking about like coors and miller just alone so that their numbers are not matching bud so what's happening here in my opinion is uh either bud's not telling the truth about their decline or it it really just hasn't hit them at the factory level yet uh, and I think I think at this point we're the 23rd of April. I think by now they're they're really starting to realize it. So, um, and the uh, another update on that is the um, uh, the gal that the marketing executive I forget her name now. Now she has taken a leave, a leave of absence. So something's going on at that on that level. So we'll see what happens with Bud Light. Um, like like I said, this has nothing to do with sexual orientation at whatsoever. It's the woke agenda that people are sick to death of getting rammed down their throats. That's exactly what this is all over. Anyway, my friends, we got a big show today, so let's get this one started. We'll be right back. Welcome, friends, to Canadian Patriot Radio, where conspiracy is not theory and political corruption finds the spotlight. CPR, we are committed to upholding Canadians' God-given rights to life, liberty, and freedom with all thy sons. Command. Right, welcome back, my friends. Um, as you know, the CBC is kind of in the hot seat over the Twitter stuff that's going on. Um, <clears throat> basically, they don't like the fact that they're being tagged as being government funded, which they are. Uh, we all know that. But this, the corruption, um, the corruption in the media and the government sway over the media is something that we're all starting to scratch our head about. Uh, it's no surprise to any of us of, of what's being revealed, but. Um, <clears throat> A guy by the name of uh, Jonathan Harvey that has a show called Off the Cuff did a, an incredible breakdown of this that I want you guys to hear. Um, he's uh, 
he's really well researched this. He's looked very deep into this. So I want I want to turn it turn it over to Jonathan Harvey so you can guys can hear this breakdown that he's done. Government funded media tags on the accounts of government funded media outlets. And for some reason, everyone is starting to get upset about it. So I decided to take a deeper look and it is so much worse than I thought. This all got rolling when CBC or the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation was offended by the government funded label their account was given this past week. Which is strange because it's no secret that they rely heavily on Justin Trudeau's Liberal government to fund their operation. This funding included $1.4 billion in the fiscal year ending in 2021 and $1.2 billion or more from 2018 to 2022. According to Elon's math, this is a number that is currently hovering around 69% of their total annual revenue. However, when Twitter branded them with this objectively accurate label, the Prime Minister was enraged. Some might say the Fuhrer was infuriated. Anyway, he immediately tried to blame the Conservatives for attacking independent media organizations and delegitimizing their work. Now, this is particularly interesting if you look back at an article written in 2022. Liberals moved to modernize CBC, making public broadcaster less reliant on advertising. The article went on to say that the Liberals have promised an additional $400 million over four years to make the CBC less reliant on ads. Peter Menzies, who was the acting vice chair of the CRTC at the time, said, CBC really suffers from a sort of dualistic life as a half-public broadcaster, and half of the time it thinks of itself as a commercial broadcaster. And I think that has to end if we're going to get value from our investment in CBC in the years to come. So the government, admittedly, didn't want any third-party advertisers in their pocket. I mean, it seems pretty clear to me that the CBC is not only a government-funded conglomerate, it is a highly controlled media tool that the Liberal government expects to get more value from by removing advertising dollars altogether. So this made me wonder, if our government is willing to flagrantly spend $1.2 billion of our taxpayer dollars every year just to control one media outlet, how much further are they willing to go? And, well, here's a look at some liberal initiatives over the last five years. The first news media ballot was presented in the 2018 federal budget known as the Local Journalism Initiative. Ottawa set aside $50 million to support local news organizations in underserved communities who are struggling to cope with the industry-wide disruption brought on by internet giants such as Google and Facebook which is inherently foolish because Google and Facebook are not the ones writing local or independent articles. They were the platforms allowing local and independent journalists to share their stories with the world. So then, what did this really mean? Well, as it turns out, the Local Journalism Initiative wasn't really for independent local journalists, as they were, and still, are not eligible to apply for these funds. Rather, the funds are managed by seven industry associations, all of which were selected by the federal government, who were also given mission-critical criteria to follow. And I quote, while the outcome is supported, the idea of having government directly involved in modifying criteria midstream has rankled some media recipients. So the heavy-handed persuasion of the Liberal government begins. Of course, newspaper publishers criticize the assistance as a band-aid solution and beg for more money. After a campaign of intense pressure, they were given a national bailout in 2019 in the amount of $595 million which was to be dispersed to select media outlets that obtained federal government approval. The Liberals tweaked this a bit to give themselves complete control over which media outlets qualified by creating a government media licensing program. Only qualified Canadian journalism organizations, a designation which was still being determined by the government at the time, would qualify for funding approval. So in addition to creating artificial advantages for some media sources over others, they've also went down the authoritarian road of deciding who is a real journalist and who is not. Now, this is when the liberal criticism began, as they were accused of trying to bribe the media ahead of the October election. Oh right, I forgot to mention, this was also an election year. An article published in the Institute for Research on Public Policy said, 
Since the announcement of media assistance, the opposition and some journalists have expressed concern that the media and journalists will be influenced by support received from the Liberal government. These criticisms are not to be taken lightly because they can heighten public mistrust of the media. No shit. Because a healthy democracy relies on an independent press free of political influence. So it is abundantly clear that this $595 million fund was meant to fill a blind spot in exerting government influence over Canadian print and online media. The Liberal government tested the persuasive value of a $50 million media bailout. And when they realized its effectiveness, they tacked on another $600 million to increase their power and influence over the national media. More coverage, more control. If you still have any doubts, try this on for size. Now, you sometimes hear about liberal bias in the media these days, how they're constantly letting off our government, letting our government off the hook for no good reason. Frankly, I think that's insulting. It's clear that they let us off the hook for a very good reason, because we paid them $600 million. I should point out that the liberal media fact-checked this quote and decided that it was false because it was taken out of context. But talk about the snake eating its own tail. I mean, if this is not the definition of liberal media bias, then what is? The following year, we were all crushed by our overbearing government in what was better known as the pandemic, which was followed by some pretty alarming payouts. And for me, this is where things got really interesting. It started with a $30 million media buy from the liberal government to raise awareness of this virus in March of 2020 the same month that the pandemic was declared, which is odd because how would they know the pandemic was going to last more than two weeks? Furthermore, how did they know it would last long enough to justify a $30 million ad spend? In any case, this money was paid to Canadian newspapers, magazines, television stations, and online publications. And I quote, this was paid so the revenues generated by this campaign could breathe new life into our media. But this is only the tip of the iceberg. As Trudeau said, Right now, it is more important than ever that Canadians have access to the latest news and information. To ensure that journalists can continue to do this vital work, our government is announcing new measures to support them. Shortly after, an emergency relief fund was created in 2020 that gave over $60 million to Canadian media outlets. The list of payouts included many well-known publications, such as Maclean's, The Daily Hive, The Epic Times, The Logic, and even your mom's favorite magazine from the 90s, Chatelaine. <laughs> but also, another thousand or so media outlets in our country, the list of which is available online. These outlets, of course, applied for and pilfered all of the other pandemic subsidies as well. So don't think that this was a substitute fund. Then in late June of 2021, just a month and a half prior to the completely unnecessary midterm election called by our asshat of a prime minister, a new recovery fund giving away another 30 million to Canadian media was introduced. As per a July letter from Minister Stephen Gilbo, the funding was intended to help news outlets give readers the timely information they require from their government, the recipients of which were originally undisclosed. And later that same year, Trudeau introduced the Special Measures for Journalism, a top-up fund with another $10 million. In total, more than 1,500 Canadian news and media organizations received special funding from the Liberal government during the pandemic to the tune of $130 million, plus, of course, a multiple-fold increase in standard subsidies. There is also the Canadian Periodical Fund, which is another $75 million annual payout that goes to major newspapers and magazines like the Toronto Star, National Post, Globe and Mail, and Maclean's. While another $750 million goes into the Canadian Media Fund, which is also managed by the CRTC. And just to rub some salt in the wound, CBC also paid out $30 million in bonuses during the pandemic. So what's really going on here? 
In short, the Trudeau government increased funds to the CBC to use them as an exclusive liberal media megaphone. They funded local media and national news to the tune of $645 million prior to the 2019 election to control the narrative across our country. They threw a stack of pandemic funds at over 1,500 different news outlets prior to the 2021 midterm election to control the narrative across our country. So it's safe to say that the Liberal government has funded as many media outlets as possible for several billion dollars prior to the last two elections, and they still couldn't win a majority. This is a wild abuse of power, public funds, and whatever democracy we have left. The large majority of media in this country is not only biased, they're literally on the Liberal government payroll. So no wonder Justin Trudeau is going on the attack right now. He's concerned if he doesn't kick and scream like a petulant child and rally his media troops to get in sync, more people will come to realize what I just explained to all of you. So don't be afraid to share this one with your friends before Bill C-11 and C-36 stop us from doing that too. Whether it's CBC, the Toronto Star, McLean's, the Daily Hive, Chatelaine, or any one of 1,500 different outlets in this country, it makes no difference. We live in a censorship state, and those who tell the stories control society. Politicians, corporations, and the elite have and will continue to control these entities. And they have and will continue to work as partners to maintain the narratives that suit them best. Many social media platforms are the very same. Luckily, Twitter and Elon Musk have decided to add government-funded media tags to at least some of these accounts, so that you can, at the very least, understand the persuasive nature of where your independent, non-biased news is really coming from. So now it makes a lot more sense why Justin Trudeau um, threw a hissy fit over this, and of course went on the attack uh, with uh, towards the Conservatives, which is all that these Liberals can do. They have absolutely nothing in their toolbox when it comes to... Um, our, our arguments or, or rhetoric they just basically just always go back to Stephen Harper's government and blah 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 they're idiots but it's uh, it's there's none of this is really all that surprising some of the details was pretty cool that uh, Jonathan Harvey found um, the amount of money and the amount of control that the liberals have I thought you know a lot of us probably thought it was just well shouldn't say that you CTV global uh, CBC all of them they they bark the exact same narrative up here so he just he just hit the nail on the head when he said it's a censorship state and whoever controls the narrative with the media um, they can get their message out and it works it really does work even though they couldn't get a majority twice in a row the only reason they weren't voted completely out of office was because they have so much sway and such a bullhorn with the legacy mainstream media. So nothing is surprising anymore when it comes to these corrupt liberals. Absolutely nothing. Um, that's why I call them fascists that masquerade as liberals. They mimic, like think about this, like Goebbels in, in Nazi Germany, Goebbels controlled the media. They controlled the narrative. They learned from that. They're acting like that. And then look at what they did with the, the pandemic. They absolutely destroyed the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and didn't don't give a rip. They don't care. That's exactly what they want. I mean, the guy emulates China. Trudeau has admitted on camera that he, he loves uh, China's, uh, <clears throat> co the communism in China. So we've all seen that too. So there you go. Anyway, a very well-researched, very good clip from uh, Jonathan Harvey. So hats off to you, man. <clears throat> Okay, I want to switch gears. I want to um, I want to point you guys uh, towards uh, what we're kind of learning about green banking. Um, <clears throat> basically, there was um, a committee that was kind of looking into this, a government committee, and uh, a gal by the name of Christine Bergeron uh, came on and kind of described this what what they're what they're looking at, right? And it's and it's all going to be uh, climate driven. Um, uh, the way I the way I can kind of see this going is is if you're not 
if you're going over on your carbon footprint, um, they can pretty much suspend your uh, your account, just like they did with the trucker the trucker convoy, right? How they how once they had passed the Emergencies Act or the War Act is what it really is, uh, they started seizing accounts of anybody that um, donated to the trucker convoy. Well, can you imagine if if you're okay, you're driving a car that's over ten years old? Uh, now we're going to seize your accounts because you're carbon foot you're going over your uh, what we set as your acceptable carbon footprint. So let's um, let's listen to the details of this, so you guys can kind of uh, wrap your heads around it. This is a fairly long clip. I think it's about 14 minutes long, but it's well worth hearing, you guys. And our witness, uh, Miss Christine Bergeron, who's the president and chief executive officer of Van City, uh, welcome. I'd like to thank you for inviting me here today to talk about uh, green finance and investment, as well as transition finance and transparency. Green finance. And we have been a leader both in disclosure and in thinking about how climate change and social issues are tied together. Climate change is an urgent threat to Canadians in every province, including Van City's more than 550,000 members and the communities of British Columbia, where our members live and work. Climate change is costing Canada's economy billions of dollars and counting. While some Canadians can afford to adapt their lives to the climate challenge, many Canadians cannot. The climate challenge and the affordability crisis go hand in hand and are making each other worse. And thank you, uh, uh, Ms. Bergeron, for being here um, virtually uh, speaking. It's been a very interesting study on uh, green finance, and I, I must admit it wasn't a topic that I knew much about before we started embarked on this on this uh, study. Um, you you talked about affordability in your opening statement, and I just and I realized that British Columbia has its own carbon tax. It's not a backstop uh, province. But um, recently the parliamentary budget officer came out with a report which basically um, said the opposite of what the government has been telling us about the affordability of carbon, the carbon tax. Uh, they've been telling the public that the carbon tax is essentially uh, neutral in terms of their pocketbook. It's cash in, cash out. The parliamentary budget officer now says that in most provinces Families will pay up, be out of pocket, and over and above and over and above the rebates by fifteen to eighteen hundred dollars. Um, I'm just wondering if you're concerned about if you're concerned about the affordability crisis. Do you think that revisions need to be made, or that the carbon tax needs to be scrapped in order to ensure that Canadians can afford to eat and heat their homes and and pay their mortgage payments? Thank you. From from my perspective. What we are concerned about is the combination of affordability along with climate impacts, knowing that additional financial stress occurs on those who are being affected by climate in addition to affordability. So as a financial institution in British Columbia, I don't have a perspective specifically on carbon tax as it relates to individual homeowners. Uh, again, in terms of affordability, um, uh, re, uh, in the fall economic statement uh, last in November, the government levied uh, a new tax on financial institutions. Uh, they called it a one-time tax. I think it was a pandemic dividend, they called it, or something like that. I believe they collected about $15 billion from the major financial institutions. Is that something that uh, you, you, in your capacity as the head of Van City, would... Um, uh, feel comfortable and an organization like Van City also paying? So we are uh, provincially regulated and have uh, various tax 
you know, provisions. We certainly uh, want to pay all taxes that we need to pay. Uh, so that's, you know, largely our perspective is to uh, contribute back as we can. But on the same level as the major financial institutions? I'd have to look at the details, but my understanding is we are, um, you know, taxed appropriately for the size of institution and the revenue and profit that we have. Yeah, I want to turn to the, your website talks about eco-efficiency loans. Um, I just wonder if you could explain that program a little bit. For example, if somebody comes and they buy like a hundred year old home that's got poor insulation and, uh, and uh, is basically a, a nightmare in terms of carbon uh, emissions, um, or would they qualify, would that home owner qualify for an eco-efficiency loan? And, and for eco-efficiency loan, are you referencing this specific, a specific federal loan? Uh, no, well, your website talks about a, a program called eco-efficiency loans. Actually, they're business loans. Maybe a home isn't the right example, but uh, are you familiar with that program? Sure. I can speak to some of those examples uh, of our well, products. Yeah, so mainly because I have limited time, what I'm curious about is whether uh, someone who is applying for an eco-efficiency loan for a business would get a preferential would get preferential terms in terms of interest rates fees amortizations that kind of thing over uh, a conventional uh, business loan broadly we have been piloting various different programs and uh, products to understand how we can support people to transition if they're interested in doing retrofits largely it's related to retrofits uh, we have looked at pricing, we have looked at terms and conditions, but typically these are pilot projects where we are working with a specific business owner. We do not turn people away uh, to your question on depending on what their business is like, but we do work with them and we want to work with them on transition plans. And uh, just a, um, how much more time do I have, Mr. Chair? Over a minute. A minute. Um, just in terms of the nature of some of these loans, for example, say a First Nation group came and they wanted to uh, have an oil well, uh, or they wanted to drill, a, um, uh, or, or for uh, natural gas, or to build an LNG facility, or they wanted to develop a mine on their property for um, for critical minerals, that sort of thing. Are, are those the types of loans that you, Van City, uh, continues to do? So, uh, Van City, in our history, we have not funded oil and gas projects. That simply, largely initially due to where we are located and the types of lending that we do. The vast majority of our book um, is real estate, commercial, mortgages, um, et cetera. So we, we don't fund oil and gas projects. We do work uh, tremendously with First Nations on different projects that they might have. So we would look at everything on a you know, one deal basis to see what it is that they're looking to develop and how we may be able to support. But if it was uh, purely you know, oil extraction, we would not. No. Okay. Thank you. Uh, welcome to the Finance Committee. Uh, appreciate your testimony to, here this morning. and also want to publicly thank the analysts who did some good work uh, in the briefing note uh, to help committee members uh, prepare for this meeting, as they do for many meetings. Um, just, you know, we, we just had OFSFI in here talking about one of their guidelines uh, for financial institutions, and there was a bit of a discussion around whether it should be up to financial institutions themselves to decide 
the kinds of risks that it would like to disclose to its members. I note that uh, in Van City's circumstances, obviously you, you have some shared values along with your members that you probably have, uh, it's a source of uh, maybe competitive advantage for you amongst, uh, as you try to collect members, uh, as you position yourself against other similar entities. Uh, would, would you view that as a, an appropriate observation? Uh, I would call it differentiation, perhaps, um, more so than competitive advantage. Um, but we tried to respond to our membership because we're member-owned. You're correct. It is a very different model, though, than um, the larger banks with uh, with shareholders. So, so really, I think the question is is around should should we allow institutions like yours to develop their own approaches to these issues, whether it's disclosure, whether it's more restrictive lending standards like you obviously have, um, as opposed to having a, a government pick a set of regulatory matters and kind of force them on an industry. Or really, I'm, I'm really getting at, you've developed something that differentiates yourself in the market uh, and now government is kind of getting in, in that, in that space and telling your your institutions and similar to yours how they should be approaching that issue. Say that for it is difficult sometimes for people to understand that although it is a differentiation for us, we can achieve all of our goals and ultimately our society will not be any different in terms of emissions and effects by climate because of our size. So for us, standardization and broader transparency and more reporting is a good thing collectively. Um, what we're seeing are guidelines to support um, more consistent reporting. The reporting that we do, we pull it from PCAF, which is Partnership for Carbon Accounting Financials. It's an international um, you know, accounting standard. And so again, others are doing this and and, and we're, we're supportive of more people reporting and being transparent. Thank you for the honest response. Uh, on, have you had experience with your, or any of your members have had experience with the government's green energy rebate program? It seems like you're involved in some of the housing discussions with members about how to retrofit their um, their, their homes. I'm sure that we have. I've not personally been involved in specific discussions with members on it. Okay. I note that you offer a free, uh, it sounds like a free assessment, is that correct? That's correct. Okay. Um, the government program, you have to pay about $500 for, a, for an assessment. Um, yeah, you, you only get it back if, uh, if you actually what you put in qualifies, and then you try to go and find out what qualifies, and it's a list of like a thousand different permutations. It's actually very complicated. Um, I, I mean, I was, I was going to ask whether you think that should be simplified, which would make it easier for your members to actually access some of this, this program funding. Um, I mean, since you don't necessarily know that in advance, but do, would you agree with that generally, that it should be a simple program, maybe like you having a free assessment? 
Well, I can only speak to what we really offer. And the reason that we are doing it that way is, again, what we've heard from our membership and we try to respond. We give back 30% of our profits every year through distributions to community uh, to have impact in our community. And so these funds come from, um, from that pool of money to support our members. Ms. Bergeron, um, uh, you know, when we talk about uh, uh, emissions and uh, how to reduce them, in your opinion, um, would it be reasonable to say that replacing dirty dictator oil around the world with uh, lower carbon intensive forms of energy would help the environment? Uh, my comments would be that in order to help the environment, um, the, the maybe I'll actually step back. The purpose of helping the environment is to help people. It's about how we can live within our environment. And hence, what the data has showed is that dropping emissions matters. And in order to drop emissions, we do need to see more renewable energy in place. But to... Okay, I, I stopped it there because you can kind of you can you kind of can get the feel of where this is going. Um, basically, this is a smaller bank in BC, but there's a very um, uh, CO2 emissions uh, very underlying narrative there that's that's involved in this bank. And I'm not surprised. It's 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 a bank in Vancouver. Of course, you're going to have that uh, out west. But what really bothers me about this is the way that this thought pattern, uh, this cult, this this climate cult is working its way into big corporations and, and banks. Um, and it's all based on the cook papers um, <clears throat> that you, the old 97% consensus is, is what, uh, um, <clears throat> you know, you heard you heard Obama and and and. Uh, uh, pr pr various prime ministers through the years uh, tote on that false um, consensus. Now, I'm just going to read you a short clip by Gregory uh, Wrightstone, ex executive director of the CO2 Coalition, and the, the title reads, 97% consensus, what consensus? You've likely heard that 97% of, of scientists agree on human-driven climate change. You may also have heard that those who don't buy into, into climate apocalypse, the mantra, are science deniers. The whole, the, the truth is that is that a whole lot more than 3% of scientists are skeptical of the party line on climate. A whole lot more. Many scientists, engineers, and energy experts that comprise the CO2 coalition are often asked some, something along the lines of, so do you believe in climate change then? Our answer, yes, of course we do. It's been happening for hundreds of millions of years. It is important to ask the right questions. The question is not, is climate change happening? The real question of serious importance is, is climate change now driven primarily by human actions? That question should be followed up by, by is, our climate, is our changing climate beneficial or harmful to the ecosystems and humanity? There are some, some scientific truths um, <clears throat> that are quantifiable and easily proven, and with, and with which I am confident at least 97% of scientists agree. Here are two. Carbon dioxide concentration has been increasing in recent years. Temperatures as measured by thermometers and satellites have been generally increasing in fits, uh, in fits and starts for more than 150 years. What is impossible to quantify is the actual percentage of warming that is attri attributable to increased anthropogenic human-caused CO2. There is no scientific evidence or method that could determine how much 
of the warming we have had since the 1900s that was directly caused by us. We know that temperatures have varied greatly over the millennia. We also know that for, for virtually all of that time, global warming and cooling was driven entirely by natural forces, which did not cease to operate at the beginning of the 20th century. The claim that most modern, uh, most modern warming is attributable to human activities is scientifically insupportable. The truth is that we do not know. We, we need to be able to separate what we do know from what which is only conjecture. So there you go. Those of you that have read the... Um, uh, that read the initial Forbes article that broke down the Cook Papers that actually the ni- whole 97% number uh, was based around. Um, th- Forbes broke it right down and it was actually only like 0.3 of scientists uh, were saying that man is directly causing uh, uh, climate change. So, And back then it was global warming, uh, mind you. like let, let's, let's not forget that these globalist meatheads have changed the name three times already to, to suit their, their narrative, right? First it was global cooling, then it was global warming, and now it's climate change, which is actually smart. Climate change is smart because it's, you can just, you have plausible deniability at every, every turn with that. Um, or you can just, you can say, see, see, and which is what they're doing. Of course, they don't talk about geoengineering or include that into this equation whatsoever. Uh, because I think your, your main causes of, of really drastic and weird weather is, is, uh, geoengineering, you know, harp, uh, along with, uh, chemtrails. Um, you know, that's why you're seeing 35 degree temperature changes in 24, in a 24 hour period here in the sketch. Like that's not normal. My friends, that is not normal. Um, Anyway, I just wanted to kind of tackle that because it's it's kind of horrifying that the banks are going to be going this route. It's not a surprise, but it's just we we are getting attacked on so many fronts that we I think we just we have to band together and start putting our foot down and saying no on on so many fronts. Uh, it's unreal. Okay, my friends, uh, we're going to run over a little bit on this one, but I want you guys to hear um, this this. Uh, this clip from Randy Hillier um, that was brought to my attention by Graham. Thanks again, Graham, for this, this one. Uh, Randy did a really good breakdown of uh, uh, governments grooming our kids. Um, learn the most guarded secrets of, of how and why our political parties have been grooming and abusing our youth for decades. So let's, uh, and for those of you that are unaware, Randy Hillier is a former MP in Ontario. Um, he was very supportive of the trucker convoy and he faced a lot of charges. I'm not, I'm not too sure Graham might know if they dropped the charges or if he got out. I'm pretty sure he got out of the charges they had, had levied against him due to the, uh, the convoy. Cause he was still an active member of parliament when that was going on. Um, anyway, my friends, let's, let's listen to what Randy has to tell us about this. This is, this is truly, uh, inter- interesting. I've often described political parties as akin to organized crime and the mafia as they use their authorities to run a protection racket and sell legislation to corporate and special interests. But there's a much more dangerous element of political parties as well that I took me many years to understand fully in my time in office, and that is the grooming of our youth for sexual favors by our political parties. You'll want to watch all the way through on this one to fully understand just how criminal our political or established political parties are. 
And one of the reasons why I use the term mafia is the reliance and the adherence to the code of silence in political parties. In the mafia, they use the term omerta for this code of silence. Let me just read what the definition of omerta is. The obligation never under any circumstances to apply for justice to outsiders and never to assist in any way in the detection of crimes committed against oneself or others. That's the definition, and that's what our political parties and all their members rely on in Canada. As we've seen, especially prevalent in the last three years, is that all our elected representatives are silent and completely muzzled. The fear of being ostracized by their parties keeps them in line and upholding omerta. We have also seen this in our institutions, our law enforcement, our education system, our health care. No one will dare speak out about what is happening in our society. We also see this in our courts. Our courts have rejected their impartiality. They no longer are objective nor unbiased. They have embraced the concept of judicial notice and no longer inquire into the facts. All these elements of silence are hallmarks of an authoritarian state when people are too fearful to speak truthfully. I want to recall some stories and evidence of why and how our political parties are grooming youth because it goes unseen by many people and it is camouflaged and disguised well. The first time this became evident to me was in a caucus meeting shortly after I was elected in 2007. And this new colleague mentioned to me that he had just become aware that the Toronto District School Board had created an exclusive high school for gay, lesbian, and trans students and teachers. I thought he was joshing me at first. This is 2007. And, and I was amazed and astonished as he gave me information about this. And I was suitably outraged. And one of the caucus colleagues sitting beside me overheard this and chimed in. Now this other member was a well-known social and prominent social conservative member for Newmarket Aurora. He had been a minister in the Eves and Harris administration. He had courted the social conservative and Christian votes during his leadership race. His name was Frank Cleese. 
And Frank looked over at us and he said, the party knows about this exclusive school, but we will not be talking about it. And especially you guys will not be talking about it. Well, I was lost for words. How could this prominent social conservative have already known about this and had already been quiet about this and informed us that the party already knew about this, but nobody was speaking of it? This was my first encounter with Omerta. I continued my inquiries and continued to looking into this subject. And I want to pull up a couple elements on screen for you to show you the evidence of what is going on. Here you can see on screen is a report by the New York City Global Partners Innovative and Exchange website. And the heading of it is Best Practices Providing a Safer Educational Space for LGBTQ students. If you note in the top right hand corner, it's June 2nd, 2011 is the date. And in the first sentence of the best practices regarding the city of Toronto, the Triangle Program is Canada's only high school program for lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, and queer youth, the Triangle Program. Well, I had never heard of that either. And it's a very benign sounding name. Who would ever think the Triangle Program would be synonymous with a gay and lesbian exclusive school? But if you go down to the next section called Implementation, this is where it starts getting interesting. The tri Triangle opened its doors in September 1995, and as a program of Oasis Alternative Secondary School. Once again, a, a phrase, a name that gives no indication to what its purpose is. Very benign sounding. But here it was in 2007, I learned of this for the first time, but it had actually started in 1995. But here is the real kicker. And you can download this, the links will be included. But on page three of this New York City report, under legislation, not applicable. That's right. At no time was there any legislation ever introduced, let alone debated or voted on to create the Oasis Triangle program. Legislation was unimportant. It was all done behind the scenes. But 1995, remember, that was the year that the what was described as an extreme right-wing conservative premier was elected in Ontario, Mike Harris. Mike Harris was premier, a conservative party is in power, a new program gets adopted and implemented and no discussion, debate, or vote, or legislation. Frank Cleese was right. The party knew about this. The party knew about it for a long time. 
and for at least at that time, a dozen years, had remained silent about what was going on in our education system. And one must ask why. Why is always the most critical of all questions. But it gets better, or obviously, it actually gets worse the more we explore. The Triangle Program, here's another website. It's by an individual who is a photojournalist and advocate in Toronto. And he is interviewing two teachers in this essay who are teachers at the Oasis Triangle School. And one of them goes on to say, Kathleen Wynne and Olivia Chow were the two trustees who helped spearhead this. Now, for people in Ontario, those names will be familiar. Olivia Chow was the wife of NDP leader Jack Layden and was a Toronto municipal politician as well as a prominent member of the NDP party when she was elected to the House of Commons. Kathleen Wynne, after her tenure as a school board trustee with Olivia Chow, went on to become the first lesbian minister in Dalton McGuinty's liberal administration in Ontario, and subsequently became the first lesbian premier under the Wynne administration. So here we go. Connect up these dots. The Liberal, the NDP, and the Conservative Premier were all in various offices during the creation of Ontario's first exclusive gay, lesbian, and trans school. Now one might think, okay, We've become acclimatized. We've become accustomed um, to an ever-growing segment of our society that identify as gay, lesbian, and trans. And I want to refer you for, to the next slide. And it is a academic paper, a, an academic review of, well, let's just read the title. A Critique of Anti-Heterosexist Curriculum and Student Consent at the Toronto District School Board by an individual, Jer Matrim, I believe is the correct pronunciation. And let's read. Now, whoever knew that there was an anti-heterosexist curriculum? We knew that they were going to create safe spaces for gay, lesbians, and trans. But did we know there was going to be, and part of that is an anti-heterosexist curriculum? Well, here we go. Progress at the Toronto District School Board for sexual and gender minorities. And it states, in 2000, the board adopted the new anti-discrimination policy different from earlier anti-discrimination policies in Ontario, the board committed itself to the development of anti-heterosexist and anti-homophobic curriculum. 
No studies have measured the impact of this policy on students. This paper appears to be written in 2014. Here we have it. No discussion, no debate, no legislation to advance a depraved and damaging and harmful curriculum of anti-heterosexist curriculum at the Toronto District School Board. The dots are becoming clear now. We can see them aligning. All the political parties were involved. None of them ever brought forward any public discussion on these matters. And we find ourselves today where we are. But part of this, another dot that is not so clear, clearly seen is every political party or most every political party that I'm aware of in Canada has a youth wing. The youth wing are generally for children and adults between the ages of 14 and 30. It varies from party to party, from province to province. And these youth wings, we're told, are a means to permit and encourage young adults who are interested in, a, in politics, a way to become involved, engaged with political parties. But that's not all. And that's the disguise. The youth wings act in two very important matters that I've seen. One is to be manipulated by the political parties to ensure that the preferred candidates and preferred leaders are kept in place. And second, much more dangerous, much more devious, is the youth wings are there to groom young adults and children to be exploited for sexual favors by the political parties and the members of the political party. It's quite an indictment, but I'll bring further evidence to this. I believe it was the 2010 Conservative Convention held in Niagara Falls. Now, for those who have never been to a, conservative, a, a political convention, they're held in very large hotels and convention centers. Thousands of people attend. The youth wing are encouraged to attend. The many businesses, as well as many prominent members of the party, provide hospitality suites. Big rooms, full of free booze, full of food, oftentimes drugs, and that was one of my first observations, direct observations, in these hospitality suites operated by the party executives, the, the presidents and the senior and prominent members of the political party. Not only was there food and booze flowing, but there was much sexual activity underway as well. 
Shortly afterwards, it became known in caucus that a number of parents of youth members had lodged complaints with the political party and there was damage control underway. Now, I'm not certain how the party dealt with this, but I know it was not allowed to go any further. I suspect there was a great deal of compensation, financial compensation provided to some of the family members, maybe additional coercion such as career advancement, etc., that was provided. But it was kept hush-hush. None of us in, none of the elected members that I'm aware of fully understood the extent of the complaints or how it was dealt with, but it was swept under the rug. That was 2010. In 2012, after seeing a number of these conventions and the actions of the youth wing, I introduced a motion to alter the constitution of the Conservative Party and to ban and disband the Ontario PC youth. Well, I was subjected to a great deal of scorn, animosity, and the leader, Tim Hudak, roundly condemned me. Most of my elected colleagues also condemned me for having the gall to disband the Youth Association. And needless to say, my motions to disband the OPCYA were met with failure. I'll bring up on screen here a Twitter thread from an individual named Mike Gibbs. Mike Gibbs was a staffer during the Mike Harris, Ernie Eves era. And let's just pull up and see what he has to say. He says, I must re-up this since John Baird is seriously running for the CPCLDR. That's the Conservative Party of Canada leadership. Baird and Jamie Watt threatened and coerced me into providing a false statement to Premier Eves after inappropriately touching me when I was a staffer for Finance Minister Janet Ecker. So, just for some clarity, John Baird, for those who don't know, he was at the time a cabinet minister in the Harris and Eves administration. After leaving provincial politics, he went on and became a cabinet minister in the Stephen Harper Conservative cabinet. He remains very much involved in politics and especially conservative politics. He was on the transition team for Doug Ford and remains a key player in Doug Ford's campaign team. He has also been involved in other conservative leadership campaigns as well as at that time in 2019 was considering running for the leader. Jamie Watt is a well-known name in conservative circles. At the gain at the time, he was a political staffer, a senior 
staffer for Ernie Eves, and after politics, went on to create one of Canada's most preeminent and prominent public relations firms, PR firms, and he's good at it. Um, but here he is being identified by Mike Gibbs. Now, I will say this, this document is still online. I believe Mike Gibbs is sincere in what he says for two reasons. First, his allegations remain online. There has been no legal action taken against him, to the best of my knowledge, by either John Barrett or Jamie Watt or others who may be named in this. So if these allegations were untrue, one would conclude, deduct, that either John Baird or Jamie Watt would initiate some legal action against Mike Gibbs. But this information is still online. Another key element of this, for people to understand, these are pretty damning allegations that Mr. Gibbs provides. At no time has anyone in the mainstream media published a story on these allegations. But let's read further what Mike has to say. I was advised Premier Eves was informed about the inappropriate behavior by Baird and Watt through a colleague. I was told he, the Premier, was aware of similar incidents with other staff and therefore was alarmed and angry. Watt and Baird told me that the Premier was threatening to expel Baird from Cabinet and to end his political career. Watt told me if I did not beg for Baird's forgiveness for exposing him and write a false statement to the Premier denying it, that they would ruin my life forever. And I say that, let's emphasize that, ruin my life forever. Because as you'll read through this thread, it has been very destructive on Mike Gibbs' life since. But Mike goes on that he was terrified and fearful, and he complied with providing false evidence to the Premier. Here's another one. Mike says he later also confided in Chris Stockwell. Now, Chris Stockwell, again, was another member, another cabinet minister in the Harris and Eves administration, and for a period of time was also the speaker of the Ontario Legislative Assembly. And the speaker does, is supposed to have a nonpartisan role in one of the responsibilities is, of course, to ensure that there is a safe workspace at the Legislative Assembly for all elected members and staff. And in the next paragraph. And later, during the 2003 election campaign, another incident with Jamie Watt. This was long after the dust-up with the Premier. I'd rather not go into the graphic details of that incident here. The brutalizing, abusive, and violent manner I was treated by both men is still with me today. I cannot overstress the extreme nature of their bullying. They struck terror in me to provide false statements. So even after warned, even after being threatened to be expelled from cabinet and 
and then creating and coercing a false statement, further actions happened. Mike goes on to say, I think these are two things that everybody should take to heart for all circumstances of injustice and wrongdoing. I'm deeply sorry for any victims who came after me. Words cannot express how sorry I am for not speaking up and protecting you. And I vowed I would never allow anyone to compromise my ethics and integrity again. And finally, he urges anyone with similar experience to report it and avoid spending years anguishing over the silence like I did. So this, this omerta that is cultivated and this grooming that is cultivated in the youth wings of our political parties, and as we see, that has been going on for many, many decades now, gets significantly dispersed and distributed throughout all our institutions, our media, our public service, our corporate interests. They are widely spread out and have this complete indoctrination and acceptance to the code of silence and to never seek assistance or justice for wrongdoing. So should you be caused to be perplexed and confused as to why over the last three years we have adopted some of the most outrageous and offensive public health policies, or under the guise of public health, the lockdowns, the mandates, the, the isolation, and the harm that has been done. And if you're asking yourself, why did no one speak out? Why did none of our elected members? Why did nobody in our institutions, in our courts, in our law enforcement, Because of grooming, the PC and the political parties, grooming of youth for sexual favors also grooms everyone into adopting the code of silence that the mafia uses. Our political parties are crime families. For any and all of you who think that the solutions to the problems in our country are found in our political parties, guess again. They are the problem. You don't go to an organized crime family to find justice. I hope you enjoy. So there you have it, my friends. Um, basically, sexual grooming of youth in provincial political parties, um, and it's known through every party, and I bet you it's Canada-wide. 
Uh, I've heard stories of, of things like this in, in the Sketch, in the provincial parliament in Sketch. Uh, it's no different anywhere. Um, so <clears throat> can you look to politicians to fix the problems? <clears throat> um, I don't think so. I don't think there's anybody in politics on any, any level right now that's actually legit. Um, or isn't compromised in one way or another, like probably through this. Probably went to a few parties where there was some uh, uh, drug-fueled orgies going on with minors. <clears throat> and you are now controlled and you are never going to speak out. So it's it's wild to hear this just on the Ontario provincial level that uh, even Randy, Randy Hillier himself was, was exposed to. He's seen it. And the, the widespread um, silencing of anybody who speaks out about it. And even the victims, like what they did to that Mike Gibbs. That's that's insane. Is it a surprise? No. <clears throat> not even close. You guys aren't surprised. I'm not surprised. Um, you know, this entire world, to get to the top of any echelon in this entire world, you are compromised. And it's not just government. It's banking. It's police. It's it's courts. It's everything. It's, it's corporations. Like, look at, look at what, there's six corporations that run the world. Your biggest two are BlackRock and Vanguard. Everybody at the top of those would be compromised, especially to do the evil shit that they're doing. So it's no surprise it's on the provincial level of government too. I wouldn't be surprised if it goes all the way down to municipal, to city city halls. I wouldn't be surprised at all. It's just the veil of uh, secrecy and and, uh, and uh, everything is being pulled back and we're starting to learn um, very, very slowly of what's actually going on. So there you go, my friends. That's where we're going to end this one. As always, if you want to reach out to me, you can find me on Facebook at Canadian Patriot Radio. Use the message button. It comes directly to me. If you have anything you want to contribute, like the, uh, the last clip that we listened to was uh, um, a listener contributed uh, clip, which was very, very informative. Um, anything like that, you guys, um, <clears throat> feel free to send it my way. Or if you want to just sh- uh, shoot the shit, that works too. Uh, the email is CanadianPatriotRadio at gmail.com. The telegram room is t.me backslash, uh, sorry, t.me backslash CPR underscore two. And the website, of course, is CanadianPatriotRadio.ca. Thank you so much for tuning in again, my friends. And until next time, in all thy armed sons and daughters command. joining us for another episode of Canadian Patriot Radio. CPR is not filmed before a live studio audience. If you like the show, friends, make sure you give us a thumbs up and share us on all your social media platforms. Until next time, take care.